listening to Connection Church's podcast. All right, well, good morning, church. Everybody doing okay? Enjoying the cold weather? Cool weather. I'm sure it'll be 80 before the, day's out, before the day's done. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be in verse 32. We're going to read through chapter 5, verse 11. And as you turn there, just kind of want to recap where we've been so far in this series. This series is called The Holy Ghost, and this is all about who the Holy Spirit is and what he does in our lives. And we've taken a look at how he shapes us to become more like Jesus in the way we look, in the way we love, and the way we live. Last week, we took a look at how when we become indwelled with the Spirit and filled with the Spirit, the Spirit shapes us to become people of prayer. And we looked at the posture of prayer and why that was so significant. And what we're seeing in the text today is the Spirit's response to that prayer that we looked at last week. We are literally picking up right where we left off. But before we get into it, I wanna kinda give you, kinda give you a preface to the text and, and how this is being written. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. And this is essentially a continuation of his, of his first book, Luke. And what Luke is doing is he's writing what we call a historical narrative. He is giving us what happened. He is being descriptive, not prescriptive. He's saying, this is how things went and how they can possibly go, but not necessarily how things must go or how they will always go. That's very important because we're going to come to a very difficult text this morning, and it's going to raise some questions that hopefully we can get answered through walking through this text. So let's do this. Let's go ahead and go to Acts 4, verse 32. We're going to read through chapter 5, verse 11. It says, now the number, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought them to the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the feet of the of sorry, proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it to the apostles' feet. But, if your translation doesn't say but, I would write that in there in the margin. That's a very important word there, but. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He died. And great fear came upon all those who heard it. The young men arose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. 
Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. For goodness sake, let's pray. All right. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, we ask that this morning you use the spirit to speak to our hearts. Lord, to evaluate the condition and position of our hearts before you. Lord, we pray that you reveal the dark corners of our hearts that don't belong to you, Lord, and help us surrender those to you. Father, we pray for wisdom and clarity and grace and, and understanding as we, as we dive into this difficult passage. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and it's in his name. Amen. So there really is not a good way, easy way, I should say, for, to preach on this text. Um, there's no really easy way to discuss just two people dropping dead for withholding from God. I do want to put your mind at ease. This is not a sermon about tithing. All right? We're not going to have the connectors come back forward and take up another offering. We're not going to manipulate the text in that way. It, is, it does say something to the effect of the result of somebody who is indwelled with the Holy Spirit, though. And this text has to do more. It goes deeper than with what we're doing with our hands and what we're giving with our hands. This text has more to do with the heart. This text has a lot to do with allowing the Spirit to evaluate the condition and position of our hearts and see where it is aligning. Is our heart the heart of God? Is it matching that description or is our heart just for ourselves? And as I'm reading this text, keeping in mind how Luke is writing, he is giving us the description of the early church. Things are going well. Everybody's of one heart and soul. We love that phrase here at Connection. Everybody's one heart and soul. Everybody, the kingdom is advancing like crazy. God is doing remarkable things. And I'm thinking like, couldn't he have just stopped with Joseph? He didn't have to put this in here. This seems like an embarrassment to the new community of God. God is doing all these amazing things and people are to look inside the church and see the tangible difference and all of a sudden this. I think Luke put it in here, one, because it's the truth and that he's not ashamed of the truth and he's not ashamed of how God can move and how God chooses to move. I think he put it also in here so that we can learn from this text the importance of having a genuine heart after the Lord and what that looks like. It's all about the heart. You see, a couple of years ago when we met in Statesboro High School, I was up in one of the rooms cleaning out, ironically, for our heart and soul class. And as I'm cleaning up, there's papers everywhere. And, and I find this one piece of paper and it's got a nice big heart on it. It was very artistic, could have gone in Hobby Lobby. Um, it was very, very beautiful. And on this, on this text, there was arrows and all sorts of things, but on this paper, read this and it stuck in my mind ever since then. It says, follow your heart and find your purpose. Follow your heart and find your purpose. That is the narrative of our culture. All you have to do is Google a commencement speech or turn to um, a daily talk show and you will find this narrative plastered everywhere in movies and cultures in, in general. And what this narrative does is it teaches us that we have full control and we should desire full control and it is up to us and only us to make the significant satisfaction and security come to life in our, in our lives. It is solely and completely up to us. And this has slowly crept into biblical Christianity over the last several years. 
You were destined for, for greatness. Uh, pursue the best you you can right now. Follow your heart. And what we've done with God is, is we've forgotten that he establishes our steps and we follow him. What has happened is we live life trying to see what we can get from God rather than what he's given us already. In Proverbs, it talks about the man devises a plan in his heart. And it doesn't say that the desires of the man's heart are, are bad all the time, but it says a man devises plans, but the Lord establishes his steps. So essentially what we as Christians should be looking for is the footprints of God that go before us so we know where to step. It's not up to us to find significant satisfaction and security because the Bible teaches that it's found in and only in Jesus. And this, this text that we're working with is going to be relevant for everyone in here, I truly believe. Whether you're in a good spot with the Lord or you're walking faithfully, passionately, obediently, this text is going to encourage you to continue to do that. It's going to lead you to more perseverance in your faith. And for those of us who maybe our faith has gone cold, maybe we've been in a season where we haven't sensed God's presence, maybe we've walked away, maybe we're apathetic, whatever the case may be, I believe the Holy Spirit is calling us back to himself in this text. So what's happening here is about, the Bible gives us two ways to live, the way of the spirit and the way of the self. And in this text, new creation has happened amongst the believers. The prophecies of old have come to light. God sent his son, he lived, died, and resurrected, and he has given us himself, the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is God. So the mystery is certainly a mystery, but we worship him in light of his mystery, not in spite of. Holy Spirit is God with us, in our hearts, in our lives, and this new creation happens when the spirit comes into our lives. There's a passage, you don't have to turn there, but in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it talks about this. It talks about how in Christ, we are a new creation. And then because God has newly created us, we have been given a ministry of redemption and reconciliation. Well, what do those holy words mean? It means that we are modeling what we see in Acts 4, 32 through 37. What do we see there? The church is just getting started. This is actually the first passage in this, in this section that we're reading where Luke uses the word church to describe the people of God. This is a new thing happening. And they're living out the ideal body of Christ, what it looks like to be the people of God. You see unity, you see social justice, you see community, all centered upon biblical proclamation on who Jesus is. It says with great power, they were speaking about the resurrection of Jesus. You see, from their theology of who God was and is and is to come, that led to the actions. See, they just didn't stop in their head. That what they knew about God in their head translated to their heart and was manifested in the things that they did with their hands. That's how the people of God should look as we're living out the way of Jesus. And then in verse 4, 32 through 37, or chapter 4, 32, 4, 32 through 27, you see the heart of God, that unity, that justice, that people coming to know him at remarkable levels. And then in verses chapter 5, 1 through 11, you see the heart of man. And these two are in tension with one another. We may be a new creation, but we are still living in an old world. So there will still be tension in our hearts as believers. So just because you're going through something, don't think it's not because God is with you. It's probably because he is with you. And 
And if it's because we're not with him, then we see the importance of that through this text. We're gonna reverse. We're gonna look at five, chapter five, verse one through 11 first and then come back to 432 through 37. But I want us to capture the, the tone of the text with Ananias and Sapphira. You see, this new creation is being disrupted as sin subtly slithered his way back into the community of God. You see, this is a new creation. Think back to the first creation. This isn't the first time in the biblical narrative where the enemy has influenced a couple to try to thwart the plan of God. This is Adam and Eve part two, and God's gonna have none of it. It's very much a parallel. And listen to this. Rather than being filled with the spirit, Ananias was filled with Satan. That does not mean he was possessed. We talked about last week how what it means to be filled with the spirit is to be surrendered to fully the, the guidance and conviction of the Holy Spirit. Augustine put it like this. He said, we have to empty ourselves of what we're full so that we can fill ourselves with what's empty. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. It's being controlled by. So what this is saying is that Satan was heavily influencing them and they submitted to it. Pretty rough text. Peter goes on to say, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? That word contrived, it really means resolved. Meaning you have purposed this in your heart. You have determined this in your heart. And when he's saying, why have you done this? When you're reading the text, I get the sense that this question is more rhetorical. Not so much why, but how. How have you done this, Ananias? After everything and in light of everything God has given, everything that they were seeing, the tangible miracles of God, the, the, the needs of the community being met, just think about what that would look like here in Bullock County if the needs of every person were met. Could you imagine what that looks like? He's saying, Ananias, in light of seeing God's provision for all people, why, how could you have done this? There's no repentance offered for Ananias and that should cause us to think a little, a little differently about some things. It certainly challenges me. I was challenged by a pastor one time. You find me one passage in scripture where God doesn't offer somebody repentance. I'm like, dude's right here. Dude, drop dead. But Ananias, it seems that she had an opportunity. It says, tell me whether you sold the land for this much. I feel like this was a plea of Peter. Please tell me the truth. An opportunity for repentance. Perhaps it was rhetorical as well. And it goes on to say, she lied. And then Peter says, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? That word test, what it really means is to provoke, to refuse to reject God. That was the big deal here, was their hearts were provoking God by the way they live. God does not take spiritual hypocrisy lightly. You see on the outside, Bar Joseph, who was also Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira, they looked exactly alike from the outside, right? But on the inside of their hearts, the condition and position of their hearts were vastly different. See, to claim that we are a part of the people of God holds weight to God. That is so important. It's not just something we do on Sundays. It's something we, it's someone we are every day. And I ask myself, I'm looking at this text, why did this have to happen? He didn't have to, that didn't have to happen. Well, this happened because there's that tension of what we call the way of the self. 
And basically with the way of the self is a seeking significant satisfaction, security in our own strength, like we mentioned a minute ago. And the deal with the, with the, with the way of the self, what I mean by that is when we're pursuing life and its purpose in our own terms and on our own terms, is what happens is it becomes really performance driven. We try and do a lot to get people to notice, notice us. You see, there's a, there's a common theme, a common thing in the, rooted in the every heart of man of the desire to be known, the desire to be heard, the desire to be seen, the desire to be celebrated, the desire to be remembered. That is in the heart of every man. That's why we desire community. That's why we, we saturate ourselves with social media platforms. That's why we take pictures of ourselves and post them so that people can see what we're doing. We want people to notice us and know us intimately. And if we're doing that through the lens of the self, we will do a lot of things to try to get noticed. So it's performance driven is the way of the self. Constantly going, 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 and going, going. Climbing the ladder, whatever it is. And every worldview has a way that it's measured. The way of the self, you know how we measure our success in the way of the self? Through comparison. You see, as the people of God and when we're in Christ, we measure our success as the people of God through life change, through forming the divine spiritual character that God offers us in Christ by the power of the Spirit. You see, but through the lens of self, all we can do is compare ourselves to other people and say, okay, am I doing better than him or am I doing better than her? This happens at home, this happens in the workplace. And it comes back to the desire to be noticed. Even in the small areas of our lives, you know, my wife and I, we joke about this in our connect group sometimes that when we come home, you know, if I've cleaned the house, I try not to say something, but my heart is wrong. I'm like, hey, is she gonna notice? Is she gonna notice that I, that I, that I did some of the work around the house? And if my wife walks in and she's exhausted and, and she hasn't said anything, I'll, I'll kindly say, did you see the dishes in the sink? No, because I did them. <laughs> Boom. We have the desire to be known in even the smallest part of our lives and celebrated. But that results in the comparing of one another's. You see, what, the, what, what that comparison ultimately leads to is it reveals something about us. That our pursuit of self and the way of self that is comparison driven is rooted really in fear and insecurity that masquerades as confidence and charisma. That's the truth about ourselves. We judge our life and compare our lives on, on social, pla social media platforms. We judge what, what we're going through based on the highlight reels that we see on social media. All the more proving that we desire to be heard, known and seen. If anything is brought in this to light, it's, dirt, it's certainly the recent election. Everybody has advice. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody wants to give you the direction on how to navigate through this tough climate. We wanna be heard and seen. And when we do this, we fall into the line of a spectrum. You see, what we do when we work, 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 and work, and, or when we necessarily don't feel like we're succeeding, life through the lens of the self ends up on, on this spectrum. On this side, you have the people who are experience, experiencing failure wherever they are, maybe in their marriage, maybe in their job, but they're experiencing failure. And that failure on this side of the spectrum leads to despair. 
and you're trying to recover that all in your own strength and you just can't seem to get out of it. Maybe it's a particular sin. Whatever it is, you, you, you feel and sense that you're failing and you can't get out of it and it leads you to despair. But then on the other hand, you have people who are greatly successful, wealthy. But the problem on this end is they find vexation, angst. There's gotta be more. Is this it? And then fear of losing what they do have. That's what Ecclesiastes talks about. And the world offers either despair or vexation. And in the middle is where most of us will find ourselves trying just to live life not to fail in our own power or trying everything we do to hold on to what we do have, scared that somebody's gonna take it away because we're scared that somebody's gonna be better than us and then we'll have to compare ourselves all over again. This happens in the workplace, this happens at churches, it happens everywhere because it's the heart. And I look at this text and say, what happened? This is what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Let's take that collectively. They were more concerned about what people thought about them on the outside than what God knew about them on the inside. You see, in his book, The Road to Character, New York Times author David Brooks says this. He talks about how we live life, like, kind of like Ananias and Sapphira, with two different sets of virtues. Everyone has these. He calls them eulogy virtues and resume virtues. And with the resume virtues, how many of you guys ever have written on a resume? I'm just an average guy. I get the job done. No, no, no. I spearheaded that movement and it was successful. You know, we begin to use terms that we never say in, in public life to make ourselves look good. We have a set of resume virtues, who we want to be, who, we, who our selves desire to be. But then we have the eulogy virtues, which is who we really are who your family knows you are, who your friends know you are. And so often what we see in Ananias and what we see in ourselves is that we live in constant striving for those resume virtues rather than focusing on the important ones of the eulogy virtues of the people that are immediately around us that God has given us to reach. See, that led them into performance Notice in verse four, Peter said, you didn't have to do anything. You didn't have to sell the land. You didn't, and when you sold the land, you certainly didn't have to give us the full amount. They didn't have to do anything, but that performance-driven mindset, we gotta do something to keep up with everybody else. And they begin to compare themselves with Barnabas. They were searching for the praise of people rather than praising God about what he was doing in and through them. It led them into a place of fear. It says they kept some back. It doesn't say they were fearful, but why do we keep things back from God? Really, it's rooted in fear that he is not enough. You see, Ananias and Sapphira, like Adam and Eve, bought into Satan's lie that God was withholding. And by buying into that lie that God was withholding, they ended up withholding from God. Out of fear. You see that the way of the self is often premeditative and manipulative. They've manipulated the situation to make themselves look good. And we do that all the time in small ways and in large ways. In student ministry, there have been times when I have talked to another youth pastor and said, my numbers are, my numbers are about 150. I got like 12 students really. It's bad everywhere. We, we try to manipulate our, our, our context to make ourselves look good. Notice the premeditative nature of this. 
they thought about this. They premeditated this sin to conspire. You see, sin in our lives, guys, it doesn't just happen. Sometimes, sure. But the majority of the times, our sins are premeditative. And we begin to position ourselves in ways that we sin. For example, in the workplace, guys or, or ladies, are we premeditating our day and positioning ourselves around a certain person that may, be not, that may as not be our spouse so that we can have sort of an emotional affair without having any serious implications? Are we positioning ourselves before our bosses to try to get them to notice us? Pornography doesn't just happen. It's a thought process. If you take collectively the amount of money that's been spent on pornography, world hunger would not exist. We think about what we want to do. We translate it to the heart and then into the hands. We premeditate our sin and thought. That's why Romans 12, 9 says the key is renewing the mind, and we can only do that by the power of the Spirit. Because when we begin to think differently, we begin to live differently. And that thinking differently only comes when our lives are illuminated by the power of the Spirit. So that's the way of the self. That's our culture's narrative. But then there's the way of the Spirit that we see in verses four, chapter 4, verse 32 through 37. And what we see is that surrender is self-sacrificial living for the sake of others. That is the whole context. That is the heart of God. You see, there's a passage in Ezekiel that talks about that when the Spirit comes into our lives, He moves us. He causes us to, to desire Him and to live differently. When the Spirit comes into our lives, church, things begin to take a different form. We are moved by God and then we naturally move for God. And Barnabas is the example that they give us. See, Barnabas, he's mentioned 25 times in the book of Acts. He becomes the guy who encourages the other disciples who are kind of struggling with, with Paul when he becomes an apostle. He's an encourager, that's what he is. He plays a huge role in the life of the early church and this is his introduction, that he was a selfless and self-sacrificial man. And this is a testimony to how powerful God is. You see, Jesus himself said that it, is, that it is more likely that a camel passed through the eye of a needle than a rich man entered the kingdom. We know that Joseph, given his background, was pretty wealthy. The power of God transformed Barnabas. And as a result, the things that possibly enslaved him or he found his identity in, God used those to resource the kingdom. He redeemed not only Barnabas, but the things that he had. You see, in the ancient world, land was tied to identity. And in a lot of ways, still it is here. Land is tied to one's identity. So when I see Barnabas surrendering land, I see him saying, look, my identity is no longer found in the earthly possessions or the earthly things. God, this belongs to you. You do with it what you will. And this is not a call to vow of poverty. This is not a vow of relinquishing everything. This is a result of the Spirit working within us. This is not a requirement. This is a result of the Spirit. 
is that we begin to live self-sacrificially for the sake of others. And I honestly believe that we are never more like Jesus than when we are living in full surrender to God and selflessly living for the sake of others. Doing that, living selflessly and sacrificially for the sake of God and others puts us closer to the heart of God than any other area of our lives, I believe. If you don't believe me, just look at the cross. Look at the cross. And it says great power, great grace, and great fear all throughout this text was coming upon. You see, the great power of the Holy Spirit is that he begins to reshape and reform us. We begin as a result to take our sin seriously, not premeditated on him anymore, but begin to bury it. Paul talks about that we should, be, we should be killing the sin daily in our lives. Only by the power of the Spirit and great grace. See, when God's grace washes over us, we desire to show grace and live graciously towards and for others. And then great fear. This is not the terror. This is a healthy reverence and, and awareness of God's presence. I don't know if you can tell this morning, but we want the Holy Spirit here this morning. So what are, where does this leave us? Three things I want us to take away, and then we're gonna respond with a moment of worship. Real quickly, the way of the self kills communion with God and others. That's the first thing I want you guys to take away. You see, because in our performance driven mindset, we will always find something to do, but it will never be satisfying for our souls. Maybe some of us are experiencing that. And then comparison. It's cancerous and it does not allow us to experience authentic and open relationships with God and other, God and other people. Because when we're living in a state of comparison, when we're constantly looking at other people going, am I better than him or am I better than her? We can never let people into our lives because we are going to be comparing them to ourselves. We can never be fully honest in the way of the self. When that person you compare yourself to daily comes and says, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing dandy. Can't stand you. You can never encounter and engage authentic relationships with comparison. And the only way to overcome comparison is by understanding your calling by the Holy Spirit. You see, in the book of John, Right after Peter had denied Jesus three times, ran, Jesus has now reinstated him, reestablished him as a disciple, brought him back. And he says, Peter, this is what I want you to do. I want you to follow me. And he goes, and the way you're gonna follow me is gonna lead to your death. And Peter immediately begins to compare his calling with somebody else's. He goes, well, what about John? What about that guy? And Jesus' words to him were, whatever I have in store for him, that's between me and him. You follow me. You see, when we're comparing ourselves to other people, it's easy to make ourselves feel better because we can, we can focus on their flaws. But when we're comparing ourselves and following Jesus, the only person we can compare ourselves to is Jesus. How do you line up against him? That reveals our weakness, that reveals our inability to be perfect and our need for him daily should lead us to a place of repentance. You see, and then this way of the self-breeding fear within us, it causes us to withhold from God because we don't trust him to do what he says he's gonna do and be who he says he's gonna be for us. 
What is the thing that you are withholding from God this morning? What are you keeping back from God? What is keeping you from that authentic relationship with Jesus Christ? And I can tell you something that God delivered me from, and I'm so thankful that he delivered me from this. I I was like Ananias. I had a fear of releasing my money. See, I'd always say, I've got control over my money when really it was controlling me. I worked in the financial industry for several years teaching people teaching people how to manage their money, how to hold on to their money. If they were penny pension, I'd say, hey, probably don't give to that charity or don't give to the church this week. Let's, let's make sure you put some of that back so that you can carry on. That was the mindset that I had. And guys, it was so bad that I literally had to hand the envelope to my wife, Christy, to drop tithe in the offering bucket because I was scared to death that I was gonna reach in and grab a five or a 10 out just in case God didn't show up. That was me. And I remember feeling the victory and the freedom that God, that God gave me through the power of the Holy Spirit. I specifically remember one day we were walking out of the church that we were a part of and Christy had the envelope in her hand and I grabbed out of her hand and I dropped it in the offering bucket. And it was the most liberating feeling. It was such a small thing for, for, for the holistic walk that I had with Jesus, but it was such a liberating thing for me. Knowing that that no longer enslaved me Actually, what it did was it enhanced my sense of freedom in Christ. So what, what, what is that for you? That's what it was for me. What is it for you? I'm not saying you're not gonna wrestle and struggle with it in the future, but what is that thing that you don't trust God with? Because the way of the spirit brings life and peace. She has to write that down. And that's not, that's not coming from me. That's coming from Paul in Romans 4 eight, five, and six. You see the way of the spirit guys, it sets us free from having to find ourselves. That's such a weight. You'll end up in despair or vexation. The spirit sets us free from having to find ourselves because we found ourselves found by God. Our purpose and our mindset have shifted has shifted and get this, we're no longer focused on the spectrum of ourselves. We don't have to compare ourselves to other people. We're interested in serving other people and serving the Lord. The spirit brings life into your family. How many of us in here are struggling in our marriages and our relationships? Do you know the spirit wants to bring life into that? how the spirit reshifts our focus and reorients our heart is that we stop looking at other people and we begin to evaluate ourselves before God. That's what the spirit wants us to do this morning. Until we confront it, until we confront the ugly self that we have, we're never gonna move anywhere. Allow God to do that this morning. And finally, God knows our hearts and he still invites us to know his. He knows the hearts. I came to this passage, guys. I came to this text wrestling. I've written three sermons out of this text and scrapped all three of them until last night. This is a tough text. 
And the reason being is because I got to Ananias and I said, where was the grace? Where was the patience of God? Where was the offer of repentance? Where was his loving kindness? I began to put God on trial. And what that revealed to me and what the spirit spoke to me was, hey, don't put God on trial. We don't put God's justice on trial because here's the deal, in order to do justice, you have to have the full picture, right? Otherwise it becomes assumptions and guesswork and people get wrongly accused and wrongly imprisoned. You have to have the whole facts. When it comes to God, we don't have the whole facts. We don't have the whole story. That's why Paul says we can't counsel God. We can't put God's justice on trial. That's the first thing. But the reason why I kept coming to that, the reason why I kept coming to that, why is, where's their patience, where's the grace? I kept trying to escape the text and what it was teaching only because if I'm being honest, I'm a whole lot more like Ananias and Sapphira than I am Joseph Barnabas. And I want that grace for me. Is he gonna do that to me? See, the, the reason we look at that text and go, where is God's grace is because you were designed and geared for God's grace. And in your heart, you crave it. And in your heart, you know that that is the only way that significant satisfaction is going to come. Jeremiah 17, nine and 10, God says this about our hearts. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Our hearts are desperately sick without God. And you know what's funny? I talk about putting God on trial and putting God's justice on trial. Do you realize that he put himself on trial and absorbed the punishment of our sins through the person and work of Jesus Christ? We don't have to put his justice on the line because he is already just in what he's done through Jesus. That is justice. The heart of man is deceitful and sick. The heart of God is grace, power, and fear, a healthy awareness of his presence that leads to life change. His heart is justice and kindness and mercy. That's his heart and he's inviting us to know that. And that's the invitation this morning. If you're in here and you say, I've been following the way of the self, looking for satisfaction, significance and insecurity and all these other things and it never works. I'm always constantly performing. I'm always constantly comparing. I'm scared to lose what I have, but I'm striving so hard to, to get what I gain that I'm sacrificing all that's important to me. If you say that I've been following the way of the self and I'm ready for the way of the spirit, I'm ready to receive the salvation that God is offering. All you have to do is respond and just say, yes, Lord, I receive you. If that's you this morning, you say, I wanna receive the salvation that God is offering this morning. Would you just slip up your hand so we can celebrate with you? Amen. Anybody else? Amen. Anybody else? Amen. Praise God. You know what Ananias' name really means? His name means God is gracious. 
with a name like that, I have a hard time believing that he never had the opportunity to repent. The Holy Spirit is drawing us to him, church. The Holy Spirit is wanting to reform and reshape us to become more like Jesus. This morning, will you let him? We're gonna go into a moment of response. We're gonna worship. I know we're running late, but we want the spirit here and uh, we'll just save you time at the line. The people at the lunch line, they'll leave. We wanna spend some time in worship. We wanna spend some time in response. So I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna ask that you stay and you join us in worship. But if you have to go, please do so quietly so that the other people can come up and pray. Altar's gonna be open for prayer. You can come up and worship. You can stand where you are in worship. Chase is gonna lead us as we respond to the power and presence of the Holy Spirit that is so clearly here this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. God, we thank you for everything that you've done. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for repentance. We thank you for offering us grace. Lord, we pray that we walk in such a way that doesn't provoke you, that doesn't challenge you, Lord, but that submits to you. Lord, we pray for new desires to follow you and respond to you in true, genuine worship. Lord, give us great power by the, name, in the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, to transform us. Father, help us see the great grace that you've given us and give that to others. And Father, help us have a fear, a healthy awareness that you are here, Lord, that you are with us and you are for us and that we don't have to submit to the slavery of the way of the self, but we can find freedom in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand and worship?